0: Rosie Waterland, thank you for submitting to this involuntary interrogation. You're welcome. Trust no one. The level
1: of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites.
0: Treason.
1: Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes intelligence-sharing protocols, this is Extreme Vetting
0: with The
1: Chaser.
0: The Chaser. Now, Rosie... We normally start these chats by asking you where it all began. You've written a book about this called The Anti-Cool Girl. But for those who haven't read it, the very few people who haven't read it, tell us about your childhood. This will take, what, three <laughs> or four hours?
2: <laughs> um, well, both my parents were alcoholics and drug addicts. I've got this down so fast now. Um, my dad had schizophrenia. My mom has bipolar. So my sisters and I grew up, you know, essentially in and out of the foster system. Pretty chaotic, pretty tumultuous. But, um, you know, in The Anti-Cool Girl, I tried to write it. I can't write without putting a joke on every page, really. And I think although I had quite a specific upbringing, I still went through all the universal shit that everyone goes through. So,
0: In a variety of different homes with a variety of different people.
2: Oh, over 20 schools, I'd say at least 100 houses. At least. I can't (laughs) count. I, I can't remember. So when people ask me where I grew up, I'm like, nowhere and everywhere. It's going to be hard to vet me, you guys.
0: It really is. I mean, <laughs> normally we collect evidence, we talk to old <sighs> teachers and, and parents and so on. It, We're usually very thorough. Yeah, yeah. Just,
2: just try and track me down.
0: Fortunately, you're very open. So there's not a lot we don't know just by your own admission. Mm,
2: that's true.
1: But did that upbringing give you skills in being everything to everyone, like manipulating people?
2: You know what? It probably did. I would say I was a little bit of a kid chameleon. Like, you've got to always impress the adults around you. That was, to me, the most important thing. Always make sure that whatever adult is looking after you, likes you. So, I was definitely a massive try-hard and probably a bit of a manipulator in that respect.
0: Now, we normally ask our interviewees to reveal something illegal that they did as a child. Um, What's the first thing that comes to mind, Rosie? Rosie?
2: Um, <laughs> my canteen crime ring in high school, which I wrote about in my book, where I basically kind of orchestrated a money pilfering scheme when I was a canteen prefect.
1: And and it was quite an elaborate scheme, it wasn't it? It
2: was.
1: How did it
0: work?
2: Okay, so... I was canteen prefect, which means you work in the canteen at lunchtimes. Um, and back then, it wasn't fancy. Like, people just gave you money and you put it in a shoebox and gave them change. And so, after a while, I realized that people would really like me if I gave them free stuff. So, people started coming to me to get free stuff all the time. But then I realized, well, I could be getting more out of this. So, I would give them all the free stuff they wanted. So, like, standard 90s canteen stuff, meat pie, powder pop wagon wheel all that kind of shit and then they would give me like two dollars and i would give them ten dollars change under the understanding that i would later go and collect 50 percent of that money so later i would go and get five of the ten dollars which doesn't sound like a lot but when you do it for like 10 people i was getting like at least 50 dollars every time i worked in the canteen which to a 13 year old is you you might as well be a
0: millionaire The idea of calling someone a prefect to get them to give up their lunchtime is pretty (laughs) full on. So I guess you got your revenge. So surely that couldn't last forever. At some point, did someone try to balance the books?
2: Well, see, the problem is my canteen line got suspiciously long (laughs) (laughs) because I I was giving everyone free stuff plus they were getting free money. Plus... I would like to say that like I I had this kind of moral ethical epiphany where I realized what I was doing was wrong but to be honest I was just shit scared and so after about probably a month maybe 4 or 5 weeks I freaked out and I stopped doing it. So my reign of crime and glamour was over going to get chips and gravy after school with all
0: my cash. And is the mystery of why the books weren't balanced? <laughs> was that ever solved?
2: Did they even balance the books? I didn't even know. It all seemed a bit like shit back then. It was all just money in a shoebox. How would they have known?
0: And how did it work in terms of making people like you?
2: Well, I was the girl who gave out free stuff. <laughs> so that, that's always going to make people like you. That's what Oprah does. But, um, all, I mean, mainly it was just for me and my friends. We'd collect the money and then we'd go buy, like, chocolate milk and chips and gravy after school.
0: What was it like changing school all the time? How did you react to that when it happened?
2: I mean, I just got used to it. It, uh, Although, I mean, I was never a cool kid, but I found that you have to strike the perfect balance. So when you change schools that much, you know you're not going to be a queen bee because that was never me. My older sister, who was this perfect glamorous model, as far as I was concerned, would walk into any new school and immediately be the coolest girl there. But I was like, kind of the best I could hope for was to just not be noticed. So I knew I wasn't going to be in the queen bee, but you also don't want to be the absolute bottom rung of the ladder. So my strategy was to just go there and blend.
1: Did you find yourself turning to humor to sort of
2: make Um, it work? Sometimes, but, like, I was painfully shy. I am still. So, humour... Oh, yeah, clearly. (laughs) No, really, I am quite shy. (laughs) I mean, I'm here under duress, you guys, so I have to be talkative. But um, humour was for me, privately. I used to write a lot, and I was a drama geek as well, but...
0: Sorry, Rosie. Uh, Charles, can I speak to you for a (laughs) moment? Yeah, sure. Oh, my gosh. Just, we'll be back in a second. Do you think that she's trying to get us to like her as though we were older kids at uh, the school. I think that is definitely
1: um, what's going on. And I think, actually, Malcolm Turnbull would be very interested in getting those skills, Dom.
0: How to make people... I know. Yeah, I mean, we How could to win put, people over.
1: Yeah, put them in touch, and uh, I think Rosie could actually help out.
0: Well, I mean, my concern is that it's, it's kind of working.
1: It is working. Like, I, I find myself sort of liking her. You've got to be strong, Charles. What are we going to do? Should we, should we try some torture or something like that? To sort of what would Peter Dutton do? Yeah, that
0: is right. What would Dutto do? Look blankly and not understand what she was talking about. Okay, let's try that. Okay. Sorry, Rosie. So I guess going to all these new places and trying to fit in to new environments, mm-hmm. what was the hardest environment that you had to fit into?
2: School-wise? Yeah. Um. Probably I went, you know, like I said, I went to over 20 schools. They were all public shitty schools. The worst one was when I went to a private boarding school on the North Shore when I was in years 10, 11 and 12.
0: This is very useful to us because under this particular government, that's where they all came from. So they don't understand how to relate to the rest of the community. But you Uh would have some insight into that. What do people seem like in these fancy schools? What did Um, you think of it?
2: Look, to be honest, they were assholes. (laughs) Straight up.
0: The government's got the same problem. (laughs) Was it all
1: girls?
2: No, it was a co-ed boarding school on the Upper North Shore, which legally I am not allowed to name because I say a lot of bad things about it in my book.
1: Isn't there about one of them? Yes, there
2: is. (laughs) Google it. Google away. Um,
0: Anything you Google is legally your own (laughs) responsibility. And
1: remember, um, we collect all the metadata on that.
2: Exactly. We
1: will know who you are.
2: (laughs) So um, it was just, it was a really horrible experience that, the kids it was this school with facilities like I had never seen I mean I came from a school where kids didn't wear shoes to class and where we didn't have enough chairs in the classroom and I went to this school that had an aquatic center and a movie studio and and a three-level library with escalators um and and the facilities were amazing but the kids were shitheads I've never been so badly bullied in my entire life Like what? I think they could tell I was different. You know, I'd, I'd been going to a public high school in the blue mountains up until that point. So I just didn't know how to fit in with those kinds of kids. And also I was really shy because I knew how different I was and I just, nothing was right. I didn't have the right hair. I didn't have the right, like, I just, I did not know that people of that kind of Uh, wealth and socioeconomic circumstance existed in the world. It was just, it was like another
1: universe to me going there. And do you think they were aware of how privileged they were? Absolutely not. No.
2: They are, except to think that they were better than everyone else, but they certainly had no idea the bubble they were in. And I don't think they really believed that schools like the ones I had been to existed outside of movies. They just did not understand
0: that. <laughs> Once you started writing about this, have any of your old classmates gotten in touch and said, gosh, we sucked or anything like that? Um,
2: I had a couple people who said they had no idea because I was a boarder. It, most of the, my bullying went on in the boarding house. So people who went to the day school, I think weren't exactly sure. Um, I had one girl write to me when the book first came out. My first book, The Anticool Girl, came out a couple of years ago and she was actually a boarder there at that time and she said, "Um, everyone's talking about it. We all know it's our school and I'm really sad to tell you that things are exactly the
0: same. Nothing's changed. But on the bright side, Rosie, with your skill uh, with the canteen, did yeah. you manage to pull off any scams? Because I imagine at a fancy <laughs> private school, you could have raked in thousands of dollars a day.
2: <laughs> no, I was too scared. I was too scared. I was breathing wrong in that place. I wouldn't have done anything wrong. Although I, because I was getting bullied a lot, I did hang out in the clinic a lot, which obviously a clinic at this school is like a seven-bed, like, basically hospital ward with a fully trained 24-hour nurse. But um, I used to hang out with her a lot and get her to give me free vitamin C so I wouldn't have to go out at lunchtime. (laughs) I was such a loser.
0: But in between all these different households and schools, um, one of the things in the anti-cool girl is that you have to do quite a lot of parent wrangling. At times it feels like you're the parent. How do you manage, um, I guess managing upwards is what we'd call it at our department. How do you get people... Kind of with power over you to do what you want.
2: Oh, you can't. I wish I could tell you that you can, but I think the problem with my sisters and I was that we couldn't get them to do what we wanted. That's why we kept getting taken away. I mean, you can't, if if you have parents who are addicts, they're going to always put that first. So, I mean... There were certain times where um, I had to stop my mum from driving or something like that, which I guess is how I learnt some pretty manipulative management skills. But, like, other than that, you're completely at their mercy when it comes to what they feel like doing, when they feel like doing it. And Do you have
1: anger issues about that? That's an interesting question
2: because I didn't think that I did. I thought I was so emotionally evolved, you guys. I thought I was so past it. I've been in therapy since I was 17. I'm 31 now, so I've been in therapy for a long time. And then I started doing this podcast with my mum because she got sober a year ago. So she's been sober for the longest and first time in my life. And she read my book and insisted that I'd made a lot of it up. And so we started doing this podcast called Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie.
0: Also available on Podcast One Australia.
2: Yes, thank you so much. And um, we read through each chapter of my first book and we talk about what she says isn't true. And I thought, oh, I'm just being so generous. I'm just giving her her chance to say what she wants to say. And it's, fine, we have different perspectives. I'm not angry anymore. I'm past it. But there were some days recording where she insisted something didn't happen and I was just like, fuck you. Like, And so I got really angry and I thought I wasn't angry anymore, but I think I am.
0: Look, that's very interesting, Rosie. Just a moment. Charles, she says she's got this podcast, but we know she's an adept liar. The new book's called Every Lie. I've ever told. Yes. Oh, Do you oh, want to yeah. check if it's
1: real? Okay, I'll just get out the podcast on it. Oh, look. yeah, No, it does exist. It's a real thing. Isn't that amazing? Okay, well, let's listen to some.
2: Can we talk about the Mormonism, please? Yeah. Why were we Mormons? Because I wanted what to. What No, happened? you know why? Did they just knock on the yes, door? Yes, you happened? know why?
0: Why? Because they used to mow my lawn. <laughs> That's why. <laughs>
2: what? Why you yes. they mow your they, lawn? They
1: do all these odd jobs for you. Are
2: you serious? Yeah, I did. I joined
1: because I wanted my lawn mowed. <laughs> so the two guys
2: came and said, Elder, okay. they,
1: were, they were both called
2: elder someone. Elder, elder someone. Yeah. And then they were like, we'll mow your lawn and wash, wash your car. Your yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you said, yeah, that's genius <laughs> of them and of you. But then we got sucked into it.
0: So Charles, we've listened to a couple of episodes. Isn't Rosie still like manacled to a wall? Yeah, yeah, she's totally manacled to a wall. I told you to take her down.
1: Oh really? Oh (laughs) shit. Okay, maybe we should go back. Let's let's go. Let's let's, pull one more episode and then. Okay. Yeah. Good idea.
2: But then you just stopped going to work, and it just all went to shit. Because I had a psychiatrist, and he basically said to me, "Whatever you do, Lisa, don't ever give up work, Mm. because that means I would." use it as an excuse to totally do whatever I wanted get bloody drunk because I knew I, di- I didn't have the responsibility of having to get up the next day and go to work as soon as I gave up work that was the worst thing I ever did you know what everything makes, just got worse and worse you know what makes me sad when you say that what that like work was enough of a motivator for you but like we weren't
0: I know Sorry about
1: that uh, short delay, Rosie. You doing all
2: right? Yeah, thanks for leaving me up here, guys.
1: Should I take it, take you down? Do you want to be taken I off think, the wall? Yeah, at least give her arms a. Bit
2: well, yeah, maybe my arms would be a little more comfortable.
1: Okay, here you go. Is that better?
2: Ah, uh, Yes, that's better.
0: So that process of sitting in a room, not at all unlike this one, in uh-huh. fact, with your mum, that must have been extraordinary. Had you confronted any of those issues before?
2: It was the first time I've raised them with her sober because she has been a chronic alcoholic my whole life. The last five years especially, it got so bad that she was close to dying. Like, she just would wake up and drink for hours and hours and hours, so you couldn't really have a conversation with her. And the few times I would try to talk to her about childhood stuff, she'd just get very defensive and upset, and so it was impossible really to talk to her about it. Um, And then she got sober a year ago, um, and it's like I've, I've met an entirely different person and I always thought she denied that stuff because she was drunk. But then when she was denying it, when she was sober, that added this whole other layer of it to me where I was like, what? You bitch, admit it. And so it, it was difficult. It was harder than I thought. And we weren't, you know, tied to the walls. So <laughs>
0: But I guess, um, having, you know, really read and enjoyed the book, but worried about you, I guess, as a result of having read it, it's great to hear that she's in that place now and focusing on the positives of it.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, she went almost into complete liver failure, so she sort of had no choice but to get sober. She was in hospital for almost six weeks, um, and we thought she might die, but she got through it. And they told her if she has one drink ever again, she'll die. And it's like it clicked something in her brain. And um, she's been sober for over a year now. And it is nice because lots of people after reading the first book just wanted to know how she was, wanted to know what she thought of it. And so doing the podcast with her has been a really nice way for people to see that she's doing so much better.
1: You're sober mum. Do you see a lot of yourself in the sober version of your mum?
2: Yes, which has been weird because I've never seen myself in her ever and now that I'm getting to know her, she's so funny. She's so funny. She's so charismatic. Um, she's really quite endearing. Oh, I'm not saying these qualities are all yeah. me. <laughs>
1: is
0: that is that qualities <laughs> <hilarious>, vivacious, <laughs> yeah um.
2: gorgeous, brilliant, intelligent. Um, no, but she's I think I get a lot I never really knew where I got my um humor from or my sense of um, you know, performance from because I've never seen her sort of embrace any of those qualities but I think I do get them all from her.
0: So given the similarity, is she now going to write her version of your memoir? <laughs> <laughs> don't give her ideas.
2: Yeah, don't give her any ideas. She's kind of gone full Mama Joe. she's gone full Chris Jenner cuz the pod our podcast has been doing so well and um, she really feels like she's going to win a logie. Like she doesn't really understand, like she just thinks she's famous now. So um I think she's psyched with the podcast for now, but yeah, I'd I'd love to read her version, compare them, put them in one volume. They'd be two completely different books.
0: Now let's go forward to an amazing experience in your life. You're almost overnight national stardom, courtesy of your observations about Osher Ginsburg's hair. Yeah. Now <laughs> tell us about how you started working for Mum Mia.
2: Well, I'd been to drama school for three years and then I studied creative writing at UTS for three years. And so I'd basically studied for six years and was qualified to do nothing useful for society. And so I was just working in a call center and I started a blog and, uh, Jamila Rizvi, the then managing editor of Mamma Mia, found some of my pieces and published them. No comment on whether that was paid. And, (laughs) um, and then they published a few more and then they offered me an editorial assistant job and, um... Was that paid? That was paid, no Ish. comment on how much. <laughs> um, um. not as much as I was getting at the call center, that's for sure. But I was psyched to just have a full time writing job. Like I could not believe that I had this writing job. And um then a few months into it, uh the very first season of The Bachelor was starting. And um I had loved what Ben Pobgey did with the Master Chef recaps. And so I said to Jamila, I think I can do that. But for The Bachelor, I think I can make it really funny. And they didn't really get it, Jamila or Mia. Um, Mia Friedman, the boss, they were like, no, that show's gross. It's not going to be funny. We're not going to pay you to just sit around watching TV and writing about it. So I did it in my own time at home because they didn't want me to do it in the office. And um, after, you know, a few weeks, it was popular enough that they were like, all right, we'll pay you to do it. And so I started doing it in the office and then it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger.
0: And how popular was it at its peak?
2: I know, um, at its peak, it was getting millions of clicks, which is a lot. Um, and like, I don't know about the numbers cause I never really cared. I just cared if they were funny, but a lot of numbers.
0: Because I was working in radio at the time and there was just a feeding frenzy over getting you on to talk about The Bachelor. Yeah. And um, I never watched a second of The Bachelor ever, ever. Mm. But I feel like I know it incredibly well because of the recaps.
2: Yeah. I mean, I probably could have parlayed that into becoming an entertainment reporter because everybody wanted me to talk about TV. Everybody wanted me to recap everything. And I was like, I'm not a reviewer. I just write satire about this dumb show. And so everybody asked me to come on all the time. And the only show I really did was um, Richard Glover's show at the time. I just did one interview about it because I think he understood that I wrote satire and and I wasn't just there to gossip about To be honest, I can't even remember their names because I don't care. Like, I didn't care about it that much. But it's a ripe target for piss-taking, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was piss-taking it. And a lot of people have gone on to do that really, really well. But um, it was never really... Like, I never intended to be a television writer. It just kind of happened.
0: Just a sec, Rosie. So, Charles, she's very good at taking ridiculous, unpopular things, Mm. and writing about them in such a way that people love them and they become a cult hit. She could be, like, the head of propaganda for the department. She could write stuff about why Menace is great and...
1: Yeah, why Nauru is the place to go. Tropical Paradise.
0: Yes. this could work.
1: And maybe, you know, like, do a little personal profile of Peter Dutton, you know,
0: charismatic
1: man. She
0: could come up with a nickname. She's really good at nicknames. And it doesn't matter if people are laughing at him because he'll pretend to be in with the joke. Let's pitch it to the boss. Okay, great. You call him.
1: No, you call him.
0: No, you call him, Charles. I'm your boss. That's an order.
1: Why? Why don't you want to do it? Oh, you know, just in case he hates it. Oh, thanks.
0: Hey, Andrew. Oh, yes, Charles. Yes, what is it this time? What do
1: you think about Rosie Waterland... As head of propaganda for Border Force,
0: Rosie Waterloo. Isn't she that terrible person who lies all the time? Well, well, yeah, when
1: you put it like that, it sounds a bit mean, but that's what her books are about. Whose life is one long series of catastrophes and fuck ups. Yes, sorry I even suggested it. It was Dom's idea. Give me the phone.
0: Oh, no, well, it no. was Charles's idea, sir. It was all Charles's idea.
1: No, it's a great idea, Dom. Great idea. In fact, tell
0: Rosie to get started on that Peter Dutton profile immediately. The title is Peter Dutton. Too charismatic or just charismatic enough? Of course, sir. And it was actually mainly my idea. Shut up, Dom. Sir, so, yes, sir. Sorry about that, Rosie. Just had to make a quick call. Anyway, got an idea. Okay. So you took The Bachelor, something that was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And you made people love it. You made it a cult hit. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone in The Bachelor thought you were laughing with them instead of at them. (laughs) Yeah. So we were wondering, um, we've got a bit of an image problem at Border Force. We're kind of like the bachelor of agencies. You know how like Mia and Jamila were kind of like, oh, that's terrible, sexist, horrible. Mm -hmm. We get those kinds of words used about what we do all the time.
2: Yeah, right. Except from... Most of the Australian public, yeah, lawyer. from yeah.
0: Gillian Triggs, human rights lawyers, yeah, those sorts of people. Whatever. Is there any way you could recap what we do and make people love? And make it really and cool, like a pop culture sensation.
2: Oh, you mean so, like, make like Manus Island a holiday destination?
0: Yeah, let me just pitch something to you. What about if if you called us instead of Border Force, we became Bofo?
2: BoFo, hashtag BoFo, hashtag BoFo for life, but L-Y-F. Love it. Yeah, man. I can get the kids with a Z loving you guys. Because you
0: understand millennials. I mean, we've got no idea. No, we're We're Gen X. Well,
2: I'm the tail end of of millennials. I just scraped in as a millennial. I was born in 1986, but I understand them. I can get you in.
0: You are their queen, are you not?
2: Well, I was for a while. I don't write about The Bachelor anymore, so I don't think they care about me anymore.
0: Maybe you could write a hashtag for
1: us.
2: Well, I think hashtag bofo for life.
0: Right, yeah. You so don't
2: seem that impressed, guys. That's that's the lingo. Trust no, me. We
0: we are in serious uh, awe right plus now. Plus,
2: you need a bunch of memes.
0: We do. Yeah, man.
2: you need some memes. You got to you got to start a Tumblr with some funny memes on it. You know, maybe like put some funny stuff on Peter Peter Dutton's head. Maybe now,
1: some Snapchats from Manus. Yes. And we could pay you as much as Mamma Mia paid you.
0: Right. Well, I mean, we've got now we've got a lot of money. We're the only part of the government with money. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true, oh yeah, this could be huge. Oh my
2: gosh, this could be really funny. If you did like Snapchat stories are so popular. My fourteen year old niece tells me, and it could be like, hey, what's up? Did you eat today? No, I didn't. Mm. Hey, I've got this medical emergency. You think they'll let me off? I don't know, man. Mm. Tune in next week.
0: And what you did with with OSHA? I mean, admittedly, he was more popular than than Peter Dutton, but could you? Maybe do something of the sort of thing because you made Oshi's hair a character.
2: Yes. What about
0: Dado's face? Would that Dutto's face? Um Should he own the potato thing? We've been telling him that maybe <laughs> he should be doing I think it. he
2: should you know what? Osha did not like me talking about his hair at first. He got very funny about it. He didn't like that I made jokes about him dyeing his hair, which He clearly did. Um, He doesn't anymore, but back then he did. And so I made jokes about this perfectly chocolatey brown colour that could only come from a box and and about its glorious height. And he he got a bit funny about it, didn't really like it. Then he saw the benefit of it because the hashtags blew up, his head became a meme, he became really popular. So what we need to do is put together a case file of Oshie's hair going from – like a nobody on the show mm. to a huge deal, a character in itself, show that to Duddo and say, we can do this, but for your face. What do you I reckon? Can, I can imagine the
0: PowerPoint presentation now, Charles.
2: Guys, be... PowerPoint, no. no.
0: but for Duddo, it's all he understands.
2: Oh, right. Oh, yeah, I guess. Do they even still that, have PowerPoint?
0: He understands PowerPoint and he understands hitting people on the head with phone books because yeah. he's a Queensland cop. Right. That's all we've got.
2: <laughs> well, I think if we put together this case study... I think he might go for it.
0: This is very, very exciting. Yeah. Now let's talk about your book because you have some more skills that I think could be relevant to us here at Border Force. It's called Every Lie I've Ever Told. Now Charles and I, our our personal training development goal Mm. is to become better liars. We're actually… It's in our KPIs. We're not really good at it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty good. So this book is full of… Lies I've told. Lies that you've told, that you've confessed to, except is that a lie in itself, is it, Dom? Is it? Oh, she's very
2: good. Oh, it's she's... lie inception. Look, it's yeah. I mean, there's that was I came up with the title first because you know I had already written a memoir at twenty eight. And I had to write another nonfiction book because I signed a two-book deal, so it was in my contract. How much more
0: life did you have to adapt?
2: <laughs> I had none, <laughs> so I thought two memoirs at thirty is a bit insufferable. I have nothing left to say, um, and so I came up with this title, "Every Lie I've Ever Told," and just decided to write a bunch of funny essays. Um, and but so there's a lot of a lot of my secrets. There's a lot of
1: true stuff in there, or is that just cover? Like, are you actually writing a whole lot of stuff which? Rings true, but you're saying it's a lie, so that
0: you know. Oh, this is too complicated. I know, <laughs> <laughs>
1: but because no, I've only just read, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying the book.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that but, wait? Is that a lie or is <laughs> <to> try that the <laughs> truth?
1: No, it's I definitely even... a lie. Um, no, no, I really I've am. Got you guys in
2: mental knots, and I'd be perfect for Bofo.
1: But like, just not to bring you down or anything. But did Tony die? Yes. So that's true. Yes.
2: So it's really sad. While I was writing the book, my best friend died. Oh. Um, and I know I'm sorry. Spoiler alert, because yeah. you haven't finished the book yet. No, no. I um. So I had been writing all these essays, and I just intended for the book to be filled with funny essays. But then my friend died, and um, I so I sort of weaved the narrative of me dealing with the aftermath of that into the book also. So those bits are true.
0: I met Tony at your first book launch. You did. He just seemed like the loveliest bloke. In fact, he saved your first book launch, didn't he?
2: He did because I forgot my speech and he went back to our house in like peak hour traffic to get it. He missed the whole party, got back literally before I had to get up on stage and give a speech. So he was always doing that kind of stuff for me. He was like my... um, he was like my, I guess, the closest thing I've ever had to a life partner, I suppose. And you were just
0: kind of going, look, everyone, it's fine. He'll be back very soon. Tony's got this. Yeah. <laughs> Me, if Reuben, just chill on the speech. Just, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. It'll be all right. And it was all right.
2: Yeah, it was fine. He always saved the day.
0: So some of the lies in the book, just to go to the start. Yes. The selfie. Charles, you, you were quite, because yeah, I remember yeah, when the yeah, selfie <laughs> came out. That was oh, a, you mean extraordinarily nude, The nude, the nude selfie. When I was naked, yes. the naked
2: selfie. The
0: na- naked <laughs> selfie. So the lie was, I will never pose naked.
2: And then I did. <laughs> and then you told me. My mum thought I was drunk because I did it at like eleven o'clock at night, but I honestly wasn't. I just, I don't know. I I had a lot of thoughts about body image and celebrity and and um, and weight and stuff, and so I wrote this like what I thought was a very considered, um, well thought out critique of feminism and and women and and their attitudes towards their bodies. But when I wrote it, I felt like oh everybody says this all the time. And um, I think for me, because I'm a bigger girl, it was important for me to attach a photo with it to say like, I'm not just another bloody fitness blogger talking about how hard it is to have body issues. I'm actually someone living in a body that society doesn't really accept. And so here's a photo just to further prove my point. But to me, it was all about what I wrote. But nobody cared about what I wrote. They just cared that I wrote a naked
1: selfie. <laughs> but I I disagree. Like, I think um, what you wrote was really angry. Yeah. Do, you, do you think that actually you know the, the way you deal with your anger is through writing?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean I get I suppose it's how I make sense of things. People often ask me if writing is cathartic for me because, so, you know, I tell stories about myself, which I find a really annoying question because I feel like that's something people ask female memoirists only. Like I don't think I've ever read an interview with David Sedaris where someone asked him if what he does is cathartic or I don't think I've ever heard someone ask Louis C.K. if the story he tells are cathartic. I think people assume women memoirists are just writing their diary. Um, and so I get asked that a lot and it's not, I enjoy writing. I enjoy the skill of it, the craft of it. Um, I enjoy entertaining people and engaging people. I may use it to work through, make sense of things in my head, but I'm always thinking of the finished product for the person reading it, not for myself.
0: It's interesting what you're saying before about writing and feeling a need to put, to put jokes in. I'm sure Charles and I feel the same way about it. How hard was it to go? from writing about something completely external on TV to writing about yourself. Have you ever wondered whether you took that too far in terms of what you were willing to share? About myself? Mm. Uh Because at first it was, you were writing, it was all about pop culture, but now you you are in the the world of personal memoir and personal revelation.
2: I don't know. I mean, I just, to be honest, I'll... I'll reveal anything for a good story. I don't know if that's the drama school student in me or I just want to entertain people and and engage with people and move people and, I mean, if I feel like uh, there's so much humiliating stuff about me in both my books, <laughs> but if I think it's a good story, I want to write it down.
1: Dom, can I see you for a moment? Yeah, sure. Sorry, Rosie. Charles, we really like people who confess. That's true. But, but uh, I'm worried that, like, if all her confessionals are out there, then there's no blackmail material. Like, that's really What are we going to do?
0: Uh, we've, it, we've got to use the carrot this time, I think. She, she seemed to go along with the Peter Dutton image stuff, unless she was just lying to us. Well, it's so hard to know. Let's, let's see what we can figure out. But no, I, I don't think the stick's going to work on this one. No, it's not. Should we tie her back up?
2: Do what you got to do, boys.
0: Now, Rosie, you said before that you were really shy. Yeah. And yet, one of your major activities over the past few years has been performing comedy shows in public to rapidly increasing sizes of audience. Yeah. Was the shy thing a lie? Or <laughs> how do you bring yourself to do that?
2: Okay. I've heard people use the term introverted extrovert, which I think is what describes me... I mean, I basically say to people, I am more comfortable performing on stage to, you know, I think my crowd in Sydney last week was about 700. I'm more comfortable, like, performing on stage to 700 people than I am talking to one person at a party that I don't know. Like, I'm socially inept, I'm very shy, I don't know how to talk to people, I I don't really know unless they watch the same TV shows as me, but performing's, I don't know, it's
0: different. What made you decide to do it in the first place?
2: Um, After my first book came out, somebody approached me and asked if I'd ever thought of doing a one-woman show. And I honestly hadn't considered it because people have asked me in the past, like, why I don't do stand-up, and the idea of stand-up is just petrifying to me. I would never do it in a million years. But when it was put to me as more of a one-woman show, more of storytelling, I was like, oh, I could do that. And so I tried it at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in 2016, 2015, and then that went really well, that sold out, and so then I just sort of kept doing it. But I'm not a stand-up, and I even I sit on a couch to make it obvious that I'm sitting telling stories. I'm not standing up telling
0: jokes. And the couch is quite a big part of your life, isn't it?
2: Oh, yeah where I spend... Even in the name of the show. Yeah. It's, well, my first show was called My Life on the Couch. This show is called Crazy Lady, but um, it's where I spend most of my time. So my show goes for like an hour and 20 minutes. I don't want to stand
0: up that whole time. So you've written two books of yes. memoir. You're doing the touring. What's next for you? Have you got any more life to adapt somehow?
2: Well, I'm doing a fiction book next because I'm tapped out. I've told all my stories, got none left. Got to start making shit up. Um, so I'm doing fiction... And, um, I'm also doing like quite a bit of television writing now, which I really enjoy. And, um, like my own show is in development, which is what they say in the beers, I guess.
0: Now we at Border Force have um, been thinking for a while about establishing a new department. Yeah. Um We've come up with an name for it that I think is very reassuring. It's going to be called the, the Ministry of Truth within mm. Border Force. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, do you think you could help us out if you've got time, maybe to to consult or maybe take on a role, just advising us about how to craft our truth to resonate <laughs> with you know people Australians.
2: Yeah, I could help you out. I could come up with some hashtags. Yeah, come up with some some social media strategies for you. I suppose.
0: Would we have to understand what Snapchat was?
2: Um, Can that's, you handle that for that's us? That's what you hire really poorly paid young people for.
0: What a good idea. <laughs> oh, that's
1: a good idea. <laughs> yeah. even, even more lowly paid than have us. Have we we could that. put them on that, you know, path $4 an hour
0: internship.
2: Yeah, an hour. yeah. Oh, internship you don't even have to pay. Oh, that's free.
0: Can you help us recruit millennials and to pay them $4 an hour? Yeah. We'll pay you obviously a huge amount to do that.
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah. I can do that for sure. Just tell them that they're getting exposure and a really good opportunity and that should be payment enough. They this always fall
0: for that bullshit. I think we might have a deal. Okay. How do millennials say we've got a deal?
2: Hashtag deal made.
0: Welcome to Team Truth.
2: Thanks, guys. Oh, my gosh.
0: The book is every lie I've ever told. It's a, clearly not every lie she's ever told. But it's a good start. Thank you so much, Rosie. You're
2: welcome, you guys. Can you unchain me now, please?
0: Mm. (laughs) Yes, a deal's a deal. (laughs) Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One. Written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app.
1: And remember, no one is safe.